Our second reading this morning is from the letter from Paul to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and you'll also find that printed in the middle of your bulletin announcements. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Here ends our reading. Mr. Franks entered a room as though he had just walked into the stall of a wild stallion. Sure-footed, stern, ready to command. He wore wranglers and cowboy boots. He had a coarse white mustache held in place with wax at the ends. He was tall and slender. I don't remember a time when he wasn't serious. And after losing his hand in a mining accident, he wore a functional prosthetic hook. When I first found out he would be my fourth grade math and science teacher, I was afraid. He was not the nurturing presence to which I had grown accustomed, but he would become a teacher I respected most. He was intelligent had clear boundaries and high expectations. He took seriously the subjects he taught and expected his students to do the same. Once I understood him, he made me feel safe. I knew the rules. I knew he was just. I trusted his wisdom and had witnessed his integrity. Like woman wisdom personified in Proverbs. I imagined him to be immortal. He lived a life before my time and knew the world I had yet to discover. As he taught us about the Oregon Trail, I imagined he had stepped out of the pages of history, the great exploration of the West, the, one, the frontiers, with covered wagons and saddled horses and the gold rush. That had to be how he had gotten into mining in the first place. When he taught us geology and took us deep into Colorado mines, he was inviting us back into the pages of history with him, trusting our ability to learn, discover, and be discerning as we entered the mountain. 
And when the classroom was distracted and disruptive, he was unafraid to call us back to attention, just as woman wisdom at the crossroads. He yelled out, startling us awake. He slammed his metal fist against a table to quiet us, asking that we decide our course of action. We didn't want to let him down. We wanted to keep learning, but he too was capable of making mistakes. Sometimes he forgot that part of wisdom was play. So, like a dance, we taught each other, exchanging wisdom, delight, strength, wonder, gratitude. This is Trinity Sunday, a day we meditate on a doctrine of the church that attempts to describe God, one God with three distinct persons, creator, Christ, Holy Spirit. There has been a history of debate about how this triune God is possible, the legitimacy of it, whether one person is preeminent or another has been given short shrift. These questions have their place, worth mining. Sometimes, though, getting into the squeeze of doctrine can leave us scrambling for victory of determining right and wrong, being accepted or labeled heretic. It can bring up anxieties of being lost in confusion, watering shame, and a thirst for vindication. Doctrine calcified is not helpful. What I do find generative is freeing myself from being cornered and allowing myself to simply imagine God as a community of being. It's a practice that becomes a prayer. Imagining three persons each with respected identities who live in a dance of full communion, mutually giving and receiving love, wisdom, beauty, strength, the ability to affect change. It is for me an antidote to scarcity, to the need to compete for worth, it is an image of co-equals, of unity, of being cared for, and of caring. Whether or not Paul imagined a triune God, he tried to startle the people awake to such a vision of unity lived out, and a shedding of shame. He tried to challenge the false security of boasting in one's own glory and piling people crestfallen beneath. He tried to destigmatize afflictions, something he lived with, something Jesus lived with, as did the people. He tried to open the walls closing in on them, giving them new vision standing together in a sphere of grace where they would remain co-equals, 
cared for by God. But in his letter to the Romans, he was addressing a community steeped in a culture of honor and shame. It was difficult to shake, even if he could convince them intellectually. Not unlike us, the people wanted their lives to matter. In the face of death, they wanted to know they would be remembered. That was how they knew to measure the value of a life. Whether it was esteemed to have been a life of honor, of glory to be carried forth, or of hardship and thereby shame to be forgotten, hidden. So they competed for glory. Scholar of early Christianity and its Roman era setting, E.A. Judge, who's now 91, I believe, writes, it was held that the winning of glory was the only adequate reward for merit in public life, and that given the doubt as to the state of humanity after death, it was the effective assurance of immortality. It therefore became a prime and admired objective of public figures to enshrine themselves by actually defining their own glory in the undying memory of posterity. And what was more, a person was thought to the meaner for not pursuing this quest for glory. Self-magnification thus became a feature of Hellenic higher education and by means merely a caricature of its aim. To have a life that matters. To be remembered. To live on. I hear Paul shouting from the crosswoods as if woman wisdom saying, though we have known afflictions, we rise. I hear him wanting to offer them the strength of hard-won endurance, fortitude, and hope. How do you wrest someone's fear away from them? Their shame? Their attachment to glory? How do you challenge their view of the world? How do you wake them to new possibility? Paul chooses love and a call to remember our mutuality our community of being. After an offering with some grit in the invitation to let go of the honor-shame paradigm and to let transform the competition to prove our life's worth, we are invited to trust in the mystery that was there at our beginning to trust in the awe that transcends the pages of history. When there were no depths, no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, before the earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil, and to let the love of that mystery pour into us to meet us in the invisible places 
where we carry the wounds unseen by others. Those places where grieving still lives, long past the time that it was supposed to. And there, in the inner chambers, will enter a teacher we recognize, sure-footed, wise, with the strength of a wild stallion, standing with us, our co-equal, ready to listen, recognizing the spirit of wisdom residing within the temple of our being, mutually giving and receiving love strength, beauty, trusting in our ability to persevere together.